TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. It's that time of night, you can't stay uptight So come and join the people and I'm feeling alright Here on Overnight America Overnight America Yes, 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 what a night. That last hour was fun in its own way. You know, fun in its own way is always something I'll take. So this hour, we're going to talk just briefly here about the press conference from earlier today. Chuck Schumer teams up with progressives to try to pressure Biden into canceling student debt. That is the headline from Fox Business. I actually had to go and try to find this press conference. It was outdoors. It was at a podium. And the press there, I thought, were very sheepish. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. So if your job is to try to um, ask questions that would put a bigger picture together. You think that there's someone would ask something critical about forgiving student loan debt. Now, in this instance, I think that Schumer and Elizabeth Warren have previously proposed canceling up to $50,000 of debt per student, per student that still has student loan debt. So you have a ton of money that's going to get dished out. Is it the right thing to do? And probably not. Does it fix the problem, which it probably doesn't fix the problem. It's just one of those things where they get into the ear. And I don't know if this is something that you want Joe Biden or any president really to just go out there and say, oh, just we're just going to get rid of loans. See you later. Bye. And it's almost like all of these other private sectors. Well, think of it. You know, there's private student loans. There's government backed student loans. There's loans in general. There's car loans. There's home loans. There's bike loans. There's I don't know. You just run the gambit. There's all kinds of things. There's uh, mortgages, there's uh, back rent. What if you're renting? There's a, there's all kinds of things, uh, medical bills, all these things. And once you just start talking about, oh, just, we're just start, uh, going to forgive it, does it actually fix anything? It doesn't. Does it benefit everyone? Not really. I mean, it benefits some people that got into the debt voluntarily. So are there Questions you can critical, you could be critical of a proposal like this. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can say that are critical of this. But let's take a listen to how the journalists decide to actually handle this. Do you believe they handled it in a way where they actually tried to offer 
maybe some, you know, critical thinking. Uh, I don't know. Let's find out. As you can see, these these folks have great futures, but they're burdened by debt. We want to remove it. We're ready for questions. Only on topic. Yes, I have spoken to him. I have told him how important it is. He is considering it. All right, so they said, have you spoken to Biden on it? They said, okay, let's hear the next question. Does he believe that he has the executive authority? We believe he does, and he's researching that. I believe when he does his research, he will find that he does. All right, do you believe he has the authority to do something like this? Now, keep in mind, if this was Donald Trump, putting this press conference together and asking these questions. You know what? The CNNs, the MSNBCs of the world be yelling and shouting things that they, number one, would not stay on topic. The President Trump is actually sorry. Right. This has a limit. If your income is above $125,000, it doesn't affect you. Thank you for asking that. I forgot to mention it. Thank you for trying to write the press release for our for our uh, organization. You know what this sounds like? It's the, it's it's a moment where the DNC, which we know that they send out these press releases and then they it's kind of like the marching orders. They want you to stay in touch. And they've been caught doing this many times, like during Obamacare. It was really bad when they were trying to get the word out of this thing. And then the Obama administration through the DNC and all of them would send these talking points out to entertainers. And it was so telling because the entertainers would tweet out or say the same exact talking points. I mean, verbatim, and you would look at it and say, huh, well, that's weird. It's almost like there's a coordinated effort. <laughs> and I think that they do that. They try to keep things on message. So, so far, press conference, we're talking about trying to eliminate student debt for, you know, all these different people, 50,000, blah, blah, blah. And what the reporters are trying to do is like, here, we're going to help you write the press release to us as opposed to asking anything that would be of substance or something critical to it. Let's continue. Let's see where they go from there. It only affects middle class and poorer students. Okay. Well, let, Angela, any of you guys want to say anything else? Nope. How about you, Jamal? Now he's asking for questions at this point, and the members of the media are just standing there twiddling their thumbs. And I thought, you got to be kidding me with all of this. You got to be kidding me. Put a Kevin Colleen in front of Chuck Schumer to ask some real questions. Seriously, get someone that actually wants to get to the bottom of something like this. Now, will it go alone? Probably not. Uh, some things that have been noted in New York alone, there's about 90 billion still owed in student loans. The average New York City resident has about 38 grand in debt. Maybe part of the problem is you live in New York and everything's just extravagantly expensive and then it's impossible to make any leeway on your student loans. Here's what I think is going to be one of the bigger issues. So you talk about removing student loans. Then what happens in the future when there are people that are going to school and these kids are currently in school racking up even more debt? So what are you telling them? Okay, that their, their loans will be forgiven in the future? Well, no, that doesn't really say that. It's the ones that are existing. And a lot of times these loans don't actually kick in until you're out of college. So would they eliminate the ones that are in college. And then again, maybe part of the problem is the cost of college. Maybe part of the problem is that these universities are expecting way too much money for an education. And the cost analysis is just the kids got to wake up and realize that it's not worth for them to go to a school, that they're going to charge them 30 grand a year for a degree that you don't know if you'll ever be able to fully take advantage of or benefit from. 
And all of these other questions, maybe part of the bigger question is, are we have we, have we turned the education system into this giant money-making machine that will never be satisfied, full of greed, that never meets up? Like, think about this. And everyone brings this up when they were younger. College education was so much cheaper. Oh, I I used to go, uh, I went to college for two grand. That's all it cost. And you keep looking at this over and over and over again. Well, let's say it this way. Let's say back in the day, and I don't know how far back you'd have to go. Let's say 70s and 80s, and you know, even in some matter, the 90s, but let's say 70s and 80s. I went to college for you know two grand, and that's all it took. And my parents' salary was able to do it, even though they had a meager salary or whatever it is. So let's say back then it was two grand, and now it's, you know, let's say a hundred grand. Are you getting $98,000 worth of education above and beyond what you would have got 20 or 30 years ago? The answer is no, you're not getting that much more. And part of the problem is that I think that we keep pushing our kids into a corner because we just expect that, well, you got to do it. I guess you're going to have to go. So everyone else is doing it. So we're just going to have to bite the bullet. And now you're going to get to No, I think you have to make better decisions in your own life and then take responsibility for those decisions that you make. It's not the school's fault. Well, it kind of is, but it's not the school's fault. It's not like they had subpoena power and they forced you to go and that they're going to just write you a check, you know, a la Obamacare. It's going to be a tax if you don't go to college. We're just going to charge you anyway. It's not one of those situations. It's a situation where you're going to have to uh, face the facts of life that those four years you spent or five years that you spent in college having a bunch of fun is someday going to have to uh, be repaid. And you are responsible for that. I think a lot of it has to do with responsibility. Uh, Don't do this. I I think this is a terrible thing. And I know that a lot of the progressives have really pushed this idea. And I just hope it doesn't get to the point where we're seriously considering it in the future. I hope this is more lip service than anything else in order to appease the party. But this, there's not really a lot of substance behind it. All right. So coming up next, Rich Rubino is going to join us. He's the author of American Politics on the Rocks, polita-geek.com. Great insights into what we're seeing today. Maybe some historical uh, relevance to it on Overnight America KMOX. KMOX is St. Louis's news, talk, sports, radio. Overnight America is live with you tonight as we are each weeknight, at least from 8 to midnight. Then midnight to 2 is the replay portion of it. And I hope that you can enjoy the download. Ryan Recker Radio. You can find it on there, including this interview that we do on Mondays. It's our friend Rich Rubino, author of American Politics on the Rocks. How are you, Rich? I'm doing well, Ryan. How are you? Doing all right. We're getting close to the end of the year. Yeah. And we start to wrap things up. Things start to slow down, but I don't think this is the type of year where things slow down towards the end no, of the year. No, this is perpetual. <laughs> no, it's, um, <laughs> it's going to be a huge news cycle and election cycle, and it's really a perpetual election cycle, and it's really kind of never-ending. It's like Groundhog Day. So you were watching the Georgia Senate debates last night? I was. <laughs> yeah, it was fascinating. Um, so you're always taught to stay on message, message discipline. Um, you know, sometimes it works. For example, when George W. Bush is running for governor of Texas in 1994, Ann Richards would go on and she'd talk as elaborate about Texas is this, Texas is that, Texas was the, inc- Ann Richards was the incumbent governor. And George W. Bush was taught a few talking points. He said no matter what, the, basically, even if they talk about his dealings with Tarkin Energy, he would say essentially, yeah, but what's really important is our children need to read how to read, we need welfare reform, we need juvenile justice reform, and we need, and we need tort reform. And it worked. The next day, people remembered those because those were four very those were four issues that poll tested very high with Texas voters, 
and George W. Bush ended up winning, even though Richards had a 60% personal job approval rating. So what happened yesterday? Well, <laughs> the Senator Kelly Loeffler, she's the incumbent member of Georgia Senate. She's serving the, the, expi- the unexpired term of Johnny Isaacson. Johnny Isaacson um, had an infirmity, so he had to resign. So she was appointed by Republican Governor Brian Kemp, so now she's trying to serve out the full term. And it was just fascinating in that she said 13 times about her opponent, Raphael Warnick. She said, my, my opponent, radical liberal Raphael Warnick, radical liberal Raphael Warnick. And she said it 13 times, and she became a caricature of a politician who's kind of like a wind-up doll um, that just has these few um, talking points. The other thing she would say occasionally, she would say he wants to, you know, he wants to defund the police. Um, he'd bring up, she'd bring up these certain issues, and it really it, – it's a very interesting debate. On the one hand, people now remember the fact that she said Raphael, Raphael Warnick, radical liberal Raphael Warnick, and actually is somehow getting into people's subconsciousness, the suburban voters, the Biden Republicans, for example, people who may have voted for Joe Biden at the presidential level, but then at other levels may have normally voted Republican, folks in places like you know Marietta, Georgia, um, kind of the suburbs. And they might be looking, but say, is this guy really radically liberal? On the other side, it really makes the case, you know, does she have a personality of her own? Does she have issues of her own? Where does she want to take the state of Georgia? Or does she just have three or four lines that she's just going to repeat ad nauseum? So it's an interesting controversy. Um, but certainly I think she's going to be caricatured. This is the one debate they had, and she, this is going to be caricatured, you know, ad nauseum because it was just so um, – she was just so on point. No matter what they would ask, she wouldn't even look at him. She would just say, radical liberal Raphael Warnick. Stay on point. It's almost like um, when you're playing sports, you got to get back to the fundamentals. So you you just stay yeah. to the <laughs> script after a while, something like that. But overall, it's still kind of weird, you know, the runoffs and the laws that regarding that because it's just not it's not something that's done everywhere. You just don't see it all that often. Well, yeah, what what it is. So when, under Georgia law, and you have this in other states like Mississippi, for example, essentially if a candidate, so if if in, if in the first if the, the first election. If a candidate garners 50% or more, they automatically get elected. If they don't, then you have a runoff election. And you had, um, you know, you, in, the, in the runoff election, which you're having both times this, this time, but you're having a runoff election, you're having two elections. The reason is the first senator, David Perdue, so he was elected in 2014, the first time he was elected. Now he's up for re-election. He did not garner 50% in the, um, in the, in the original election, because there was a libertarian on the ballot. So he garnered about 49%. So now he's in a runoff against the Democratic nominee, uh, John Ossoff. So they're now running essentially a separate election, meaning that any candidate is going to garner 50% of the vote, and there will be a majority. This is what they do in Georgia law. Uh, in the past, for example, you go back to you know Lester Maddox, who was elected governor of Georgia in a runoff. Um, so you've had, this in the, you've had this in the past. Sometimes it becomes interesting because um, it's the last election, so everyone focuses on it back in 1992. After Bill Clinton had won, had won, um, had won, had been an elected president, and he won the state of Georgia. There was another election, and White Fowler, the incumbent who did not garner 50 percent in the original election, was running against Paul Coverdale. Clinton went to Georgia, campaigned for him, um, and then Republican Paul Coverdale ended up winning. But it just garnered a lot of attention because it's kind of the only game in town, if you will. So this time around, you get two races in Georgia. The first one being Purdue, which is just simply running for re-election. And the other one is the fact that, you know, you have a kind of this anomaly circumstance because Republican Johnny Isaacson had to resign. So under Georgia law, 
Um, the person that the person that's filled in that comes in as a successor is not serve does not serve the entire term and then run for reelection. They serve until the next election, which and then the next election, then they run again in 2020. So you have two elections in Georgia. It's the only thing anyone is going to be focused on between now and January 5th. You're going to see every Republican that's even thinking of ever running for president in 2024, 2028, 2032 is going to go down to Georgia so they can say that, you know, they've got their chops there. So they've, they've done everything they could to help the party. On the Democratic side, Joe Biden vitally needs a majority, assuming he's going to serve and he's going to be he's going to assume the presidency in 2020 in 2021. And in order for him to get that majority, he needs the um, he needs the both of those two seats. So he's going to spend some time campaigning there. Barack Obama is virtually campaigned there. Um, so the fact that Georgia does have a runoff election, I guess, is certainly great for the uh, television stations in Georgia because they're going to make a lot of money <laughs> off of this. No kidding. They must be running nonstop ads when there's election season and you're in a contested state. I know what it's like working at a radio station or TV, for that matter, is that they get the buys and every single commercial break has a political ad in it. They buy every break out. Yes. It's like the maximum. And you get so tired of hearing those things. And then the day after the election, your inventory is like cut in half because they purchased all of all of the inventory <laughs> leading up to it. And that's just the way it goes. All right. So that's what's going down in Georgia. When is the actual election there, the runoff election? It's well, this is this is going to be on January 5th. And this is going to be both Senate seats are going to be up on January 5th. And if the Democrats win both of them, they then have it's the, 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 the Senate becomes 50-50, and Senator Harris, um, Vice President Harris, would be able to break the tie. If they, win, if they win zero seats or one seat, then Mitch McConnell is still uh, hegemonic in the United States Senate. Interesting. Well, who would take the—would uh, Mitch McConnell still be in power, or what exactly happens when it's 50-50? When it's 50-50, yeah, when it's 50-50, the party that holds the presidency because they have the vice presidency and the vice president is the, the vice president. He's actually, believe it or not, the vice president is actually paid by the United States Senate. They're not paid as an executive. So they're actually, in many respects, they're not actually senators. I mean, they can't vote on regular legislation. They only vote in the case of a tie. But with the party that holds the vice presidency will hold, will be in, will, will be in power. So if there's 50-50, Mitch McConnell becomes minority leader. Unless, I mean, this isn't going to happen, but theoretically, if Mitch McConnell could get a few Democrats to vote for him to become majority leader, then yeah, you're right. Then there's a possibility that that could actually happen, that he could serve as majority leader with, a, with, the, um, with Senator Harris as vice president, but that's not going to happen for all practical purposes. Ah, you know, I, I'm trying to think back in the past couple of years. Did Vice President Pence cast any votes? Because I remember the yeah. night when they thought he would be the tiebreaker and you had um, uh, John McCain come out and give the thumbs down, which ultimately yeah. meant there wasn't a need for a tiebreaker. I can't remember. Did Pence actually vote in the Senate this year? Yeah, was, there's, been, there's been a few. One of them was uh, Betsy DeVoe. Um, DeVoe for uh, Education Secretary. The first time a cabinet secretary was actually broke, the tie was actually broken, I believe, by an incumbent uh, vice president. By the way, there's nothing that says the vice president has to vote the same way as the president. I mean, you know, obviously, though, he would get kind of a lot of wrath if Mike Pence voted the opposite way. But theoretically, he's an independent agent and he has a vote just like any other senator when it comes to a tie. So if the vice president were to vote against the president's policies, he certainly has autonomy to do that. Hmm. It's kind of interesting. What what was it that Joe Biden said last week during that CNN interview? If I disagree with Kamala Harris, then I'll just resign. I'll make up a disease and resign or something like that. <laughs> so maybe that comes down to a tiebreaker. They come to a disagreement and then ultimately she votes in the opposite way as a disagreement. He resigns, as he said he would. Uh, of What a bizarre world we'd be living in at that 
Oh, absolutely. Well, <laughs> that reminds me so. of when it reminds me actually interesting when so when Harry Truman came in in 1940, he comes in in 1945, and in 1946 he loses the House and he loses the Senate. And William Fulbright, the senator from Arkansas, the guy who Bill Clinton actually worked for, his mentor, um, he came up with this plan, and he said that since the Republicans won both houses, he was a Democrat, by the way, won both the House and the Senate, therefore it's time that the one of Harry Truman resign, resign the presidency. At the time they had um, they had no uh, at the time they had no vice presidency, so then they would essentially it would go to the Republican, uh, it would go to the Republicans. Republicans would then become the uh, would become. Oh, no, I'm sorry. This was actually 1950 after the Republicans both won both the House and the Senate. So you had Truman. Truman would resign. Then Albert Barkley, the other Democrat, would resign. Then it would go, and the Republicans would essentially take over the presidency. And um, so we had this plan, and then Truman landed up said that uh, Senator Fulbright is Senator Halfbright. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Oh, man. That goes, that's, um, that's major back in 1950 or whatever, that you say something like that. Um Okay, do you mind holding on after the break? I'd love to talk a little bit sure. more about some of the things that are going on. And if people wanted to find you online, what's the best website for them to go to? Yep, just go to Twitter, Rich Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O, Paul, or go to Facebook, Rich, last name, R-U-B-I-N-O, or you can certainly go to um, go to www.polita-geek.com. Perfect. We'll continue with Rich Rabino, author of American Politics on the Rocks, coming up right after the break on Overnight America KMOX. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. News Radio 1120, KMOX, the voice of the Cardinals. And Overnight America continues with our guest, Rich Rubino, author of American Politics on the Rocks, politi-geek.com. It's uh, interesting times. I'm watching every day. There's another update somewhere about the election, some of the yes. challenges in different states, things like that. We hear about certification, not certification. Okay, are they going to step in and force it? Are they not going to force it? And then the question is the possibility of faithless electors, which is in a different 
uh, stance than I thought it would be before the election. I thought what we could be reaching towards is what if Donald Trump was reelected and the faithless electors step in. It was a close race and they tried to overturn that side of it. But now they're looking at it the other way around. What if there are faithless electors in states that try to change things around in Donald Trump's favor? And I was wondering if we might be able to talk about that possibility. Yeah, I think that it's pretty much a null set. It's pretty much about as slim as you possibly can get. Um, remember, I mean, so there are some states that have laws where, for example, you might find somebody. A faithless elector is basically somebody. Well, let's put it this way. When you're going to vote, you're not voting directly for a candidate A. You're voting for an elector, a group of electors who the party basically chooses that are then going to go and they're going to essentially vote for you. So if you look at a ballot, it actually says you're voting for electors for candidate A, electors for candidate B. And those electors are usually extreme partisans. They're not picking people off the street. They're not taking somebody who's a moderate kind of undecided voters. These are usually people who have worked in the party, worked in the party infrastructure, part of the party high command. Um, for example, in New York, Hillary Clinton is actually one of them. Um, so the chances of actually changing somebody's vote are extremely slim. There have been a few examples. This has actually happened in 2000, for example. There was a D.C. elector that wanted to show um, her, dis- her indignation by the fact that the District of Columbia um, does not have statehood. So as a result, in the District of Columbia, they do have three electoral votes. She actually, voted, she actually did not vote in that election, so you know, essentially to show that um, her view about D.C. statehood. So there was that example, and there was another example where people have actually made mistakes. For example, someone, I think, voted for Lloyd Benson in 88, who was the vice presidential nominee, over, instead of Mike Dukakis. Um, so, I mean, this can, it can happen, and certainly... An elector is certainly, you know, if you're an, if you're a Democratic stalwart and you say, you know what, and you're in your, and you're in a state and you say, you know what, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump instead. I mean, you can try that, but good luck with the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> certainly, you know, I mean, you're going to have death threats, especially if it gets extremely close. But it is a possibility that somebody could actually change. It's always people say, what if somebody, for example, bribes someone? Um, for example, and this happened in 2000 when the election was extremely close. It came down to the state of Florida. And it was actually the full, the final result was 271 to 266. There were, that was taking away that one elector from D.C. So some in the some in the Democratic Party would say, well, if it's going to be this close, what if you, you know, for example, gave somebody under the table, said, we'll give you $2 million if you change your vote. And obviously if that were to happen, everyone would go to this person and say, you know, you've been a Democratic stalwart all your life. What all of a sudden, why did you become a convert to um, the cause of George W. Bush? And somehow they'd have to explain it, but... Um, the chances of it actually happening are extremely slim. Wow. I, now you just started a, another conspiracy. This could be like a movie where <laughs> this sort of thing goes on behind the scenes. It, it almost seems like it would be one that a lot of people would rush to, at least a movie in the 90s. That's a, that's a solid plot point for a movie in the 90s. So I, I wanted to... We've talked about this on the show before, some elections that have actually been overturned. There's been some, you know, instances. It's not something that would happen regularly. But though in the past, there have been instances where elections have been overturned. There have been a few. I mean, this is really slim when this actually happens. The Probably the one, probably the textbook one was back in 1974. There was a Senate race and the senators, there was basically, there was Republican uh, Louis Wyman, and then there was Democrat John Durkin. This is extremely close. This is 1974. Remember, this is the year um, right after Watergate when, Republic, when Republicans were losing pretty much all over the country. And essentially, what happened was the first time they, the first time, the first election around, uh, Wyman was actually declared the winner by 355 votes. So obviously, Durkin subsequently asked for a recount. They did the recount, and the recount showed that Durkin had actually won by 10 votes. So then they did another, and Wyman asked, and they did another recount, 
And this other recount showed that Wyman was the winner by, get this, a measly two votes. Two oh, votes. Whoa. <laughs> so this was out of 223,363 votes cast. The chances of this are astronomically low. So what happened? So finally, um, so finally, uh, so finally, the Senate, so finally, they appeal it again to the United States Senate, and the Senate basically is deadlocked. They don't. They, the Senate cannot come up with a solution. So what both candidates agree to do is to agree to have another election, so this doesn't just keep going on, keep going on in nauseam. So they have a special election, and this becomes extremely important. First of all, it's an off-year election, so it's going to garner all the focus for the country because for anyone who's interested in election process, going to be focused on this. New Hampshire is a small state. It was closed before. This is a retailing state. This is a state where you can go to, you know, just about every voter. This is why they have the New Hampshire primary, and you can actually see, you know, you can actually see the candidates up close. So as a result, um, they actually had that actually they actually made this. Uh, they actually had Wyman, for example, actually got Gerald Ford. This became this election became a referendum on Gerald Ford, the new president's economic policy. Ford actually participated in a 136 mile motorcade throughout the state. And eventually it was just Wyman going across the street, talking to voters. They knew how important this seat was. And in the, in the final analysis, the Democrat Durkin won the special election by about 20, 27,000 votes. And that was wow. how it was decided. Not there were two. two others, though. <laughs> Believe it or That's not, there was, all, there was the first one was 2004, Christy Gregware, the state, the state of Washington. She lost the initial count. Then she challenged, and she actually ended up winning. And another interesting one is 2008. This was Alfred, Norm Coleman was a Republican United States senator. Al Franken was a Democrat. And the original, original tally showed that the Republican Coleman had won. Franken then challenged, and he had decided, they decided that Franken had won. And they went through this entire process, and they're going through just about every single ballot. And they actually found this one person who did not, who voted for Franken, but then under the write-in category wrote in the word lizard people. So yeah. what's lizard people? It's basically a conspiracy a coterie of people have that there are people who are that are, there are lizards that are masquerading as human beings that really run the world. This one person wrote that in, and he was doing it because he didn't he had discussed with both candidates, so he was trying to show that. So the Franken campaign picked up on this, and they 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 said that this this vote should have counted because it was not an overvote because the guy did not fill in the oval under the word lizard people, but he did fill in the oval next to, <laughs> this is great, next to uh, Franken. So they challenged it, and it failed. Then Chris Matthews picked up on it. The Wall Street Journal picked up on it. And the guy who actually wrote in the word lizard people came forward and actually had a handwriting sample and showed that he was the person who wrote, who wrote it in. And he got, um, you know, he got a lot of indignation around a lot of people in Minnesota, particularly Franken people, who said we really needed that vote. But essentially, at the end of the day, Franken ended up winning by about 306 votes, and this was a seven-month protracted process. Oh, lizard people. <laughs> now you're giving people ideas of things they can write in in the future. I saw that you posted that on your Facebook page. Yes, yes. Now you put that into full context, which I think is so amazing. Uh, Rich Rubino, uh, polita-geek.com. You can find him online. You know, I'm trying to wonder... What would happen in the process? So let's say Donald Trump continues to challenge this election after the inauguration day. Let's say Joe Biden sworn into office. The challenges continue forward. And let's say, I mean, we're talking about the slimmest of slim margins, but let's just say there is something that could um, change what would have happened in the voting. Let's say there was massive fraud or something along those lines that they actually were able to prove in court and the courts agreed Um after inauguration, anything like that, there, is there any turning back or what would essentially happen at a moment like that? I don't know, but I cannot imagine a scenario where they would actually um, have a legal process. and They would actually 
um, get Joe Biden out of office and put Donald Trump into office. I just cannot imagine that. I think Trump knows that. That's why he's essentially positioning himself for, I think, 2024. I think he could, I mean, if that were to happen and there actually were to be, you know, a a solid, um, you know, a a solid airtight case, then obviously Donald Trump could go around the country and say, I was robbed, say, I want to be, say, say, it's time now to elect me for my third term, I guess you could say, for my rightful uh, 2024 election. Al Gore, for example, back in 2000, so Al Gore, when he was running for, when he was potentially running for 2004, I think his campaign probably would have said something to the effect of reelect Al Gore, because I think most people who supported Al Gore believe that Al Gore rightfully actually won that election. But Gore chose not to run for reelection and ended up supporting Howard Dean over his own running mate, uh, Joe Lieberman. But no, I think that if, if Joe Biden does assume the presidency on January 20th, I cannot envisage a scenario where they actually overturn the election and Donald Trump actually assumes the presidency on that day, although he could theoretically come in in 2024 and then run again in 2025. But, you know, if he really if he legitimately believes that the election was rigged, then he's going through the process. He's not going to show the legitimacy of the election by, for example, going to the inauguration of um, of, jo- of Joe Biden and the traditional transfer of traditional transfer of power. Whereas, for example, in 2000, um, Al Gore, even though he believed the Supreme Court was wrongly decided, it did actually go to the tra- go to the inauguration of George W. Bush. I'm wondering, too, did Al Gore consider running again in 2004? He, oh, he absolutely did. He was the early front runner, And most, a lot of Democrats were staying on the sidelines, thinking that Al Gore was essentially going to run for the presidency that year. He was well ahead. And Joe Lieberman, his running mate in 2000, did, made, said, said that he would not run unless Al Gore did not run for president. And then Al Gore finally just surprised everybody. This was the day after he had been on. He went on Saturday Night Live, and he guest hosted Saturday Night Live the night before. And then this is when he was naked in a hot tub. And then the next day, he announces <laughs> that I'm not running for president in, 20, in 2004. And the, a lot of the country is shocked because that would have been, in many respects, the opportune time for him to do it. He was at the height of his political power. He had basically stayed off the sidelines. He had gone, out, gone back to Tennessee, taught, for, taught, taught at Fisk University. But he decided not to. And then to add insult to injury for Lieberman, he later came out when Howard Dean, um, so Howard Dean basically body slammed the political world. He came out of absolutely nowhere as an anti-war candidate and became a front runner. And all of a sudden, Al Gore comes out and endorses Howard Dean without telling Joe Lieberman. And then they asked Joe Lieberman about it, and Joe Lieberman seemed blindsided and said, basically, I have no idea why he would not tell me in advance why he was not going to endorse my candidacy. So he does endorse Howard Dean. And I thought at the time, it's interesting, that he was trying to position himself for 2008 because he thought that George W. Bush was going to win in 2004. So he figured he'd try to um, propitiate or placate the left wing of the Democratic Party by endorsing Howard Dean. So he comes out and endorses Howard Dean. Then by 2008, he's seen as kind of the tribune of the Dean wing of the party, which he'd never been before. He'd always been seen as kind of a moderate or, I guess, a corporatist or whatnot. But in 2008, he never ran again, and now we got to the point by 2016, 2020, where no one even basically questions whether he's going to run for president again. I'm trying to Google search. You completely lost me when you said Al Gore naked in a hot tub. Yes, yes. And I'm looking, and I just did a quick search, and there he is sitting in a hot tub, which looks like floating rose petals, and he's got a little cup of champagne. (laughs) And I can't quite tell who the actor he is sitting in the tub with. Is that someone that's pretending to be Bill Clinton? Uh, I believe so. I believe yeah. so. I, I remember he did this, I think it was the, like the, the Saturday before he made that announcement. 
So it was obviously he had some he was he had some sort of a plan. He was going to go out there and he was going to do this. People were going to say Al Gore did that. And the next day he says, you know what, I'm not going to run for president in 2004. And he absolutely shocked a lot of people because almost no one expected him not to do that. But I thought at the time that there was some sort of a long game there. He was actually positioning himself for 2008 because he figured that Bush was going to win in 2004. Then he launches a TV network that ultimately fails. What was that name? I was trying to remember it yesterday. Uh, he was working. Oh, uh, I, I don't remember. I know he worked for Apple for a while, and he was working for Google. But I don't remember. Oh, was it True TV? It was, was True TV or no. uh, Current TV? Current TV. Yes, Cur- you're right. Yes. Current TV. Yes. Okay, and then that was eventually sold. Yeah. All right. Well, it's uh, interesting to go back and look at all of these different things that are going on. There's never a dull moment in 2020, and who knows if 2021 is going to be a little bit more tame or not. I have no idea. Do you have any predictions of what could be happening in the next year? Uh, I think we. I think the world will be at will be at a complete peace. And all Americans will finally appreciate every single politician, and there will be bipartisan harmony throughout our land. Yep. And no, not the, really. <laughs> the clue to those things is that the two planets are going to align here right before Christmas, and it's going to change everyone's attitude. And Pluto will be a planet once again. Oh, I 100% agree. Pluto needs to be a planet again. It'll right, be so- welcome back into our solar system. <laughs> Rich Rubino. You can find his work online, polita-geek.com. You can find him on social media. Do a search for Rich Rubino on there. And he's the author of American Politics on the Rocks. So good to catch up with you. Thanks for coming on to Overnight America. Indeed. The excitement, the excitement continues. <laughs> he joins us on the Quiver River Electric Guest Line on Overnight America KMOX. This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael's Flooring Outlet.com on KMOX. Welcome back to Overnight America. I thought we've had a good show today. Yeah. So, slew basketball on Tuesday night. So, that's tomorrow night. And then after that, the Jack Buck Awards, which will be fun, will be broadcasted right after the game. Some of you may be seeing some of that in real time, but you can wait till after the game. I'll be on right after. Not exactly sure what time that means we'll be starting Overnight America, but I do look forward to spending that time with you tomorrow. So a few things I wanted to get to. We only have a couple of minutes here. I thought that we would be playing and talking more about COVID, but, you know, I tell you, taking an hour for aliens was just as fun. (laughs) Ooh. Um, I did this in the first hour, but I think it's worth repeating because I learned something new about the Pearl Harbor news broadcast that came through. One of the most famous American speeches of all time, uh, FDR, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The speech itself was only like five or six minutes, basically saying that the United States was working out a deal to keep peace in that region through World War II, even though the United States was primarily trying to stay out of it, not becoming an active participant in World War II. This really thrusted the country to take a more active hand after we were attacked at Pearl Harbor. So we were trying to talk peace with Japan and try to figure out what's going on in the Pacific. And then they do the surprise attack. And we are meant to react and get into the war after that. Look how that changed the trajectory of the world and even of the United States. I mean, uh, we went into World War II. We had the greatest generation go and fight this war. We fought back the Nazis. Pretty remarkable things, all things considered with the uh, the work of our allies there. And 
we today go back and look at this and there's always little things that we forget about, one of which I didn't even know was a thing. And part of the broadcasts of trying to get the word out that this was going on in Pearl Harbor was a NBC radio affiliate, KGU. Now, keep in mind, this is the early, early years. We're talking it's only radio. This is how you get your information, the early years. Um, And this is how it would have sounded. And I think that some of you may have heard this before. and say that this is real, this is not a joke, this is war. Now, part of this broadcast, this is the part I really didn't know, and this is the first time I heard today, is at the very end of that, apparently they're calling into New York, NBC, the main network, where eyewitnesses watching as it's happening, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. At the end of the call, which is close to about two minutes long, see if you can understand what they said here. All right, so he's doing his report. Operator pops on and says, this is the telephone company. This is the operator. We have a big call, an emergency call. Sorry, we're going to have to take over this line. Now, keep in mind, um, this is a whole different time of communication, getting a telephone line and operators taking control of everything. I didn't realize that the breaking news of Pearl Harbor to the rest of the world was interrupted by a telephone operator who needed the line for an emergency. Learn something new. God bless America, and I want to say thank you for listening tonight. Ryan Recker Radio on Facebook. We'll be back again tomorrow after a slew basketball and the Jack Buck Awards. Have a great night. Replay hours coming up next. Bye. My heart beats with the lonely rain Wishing I could see your face again
is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months.